0: I'm here with Chris Page and uh, oh, tell me about the, on your online, your, your degree is L, is it LCW, Chris Page? It's LCSW. Okay. Chris Page, LCSW. Uh, what does that stand for? Licensed clinical social worker. Okay. And, and so you've been a, a social worker for way before you had had your iatrogenic injury. Correct. Yep. Okay yep. and and tell me and how many years ago was that that you went through that you you had it a... I
1: got a, I originally got injured at the end of 2013 beginning of
0: 2014 Oh so before that you, you didn't know what it was to I was had like no to... idea
1: nope no idea
0: Oh uh, so and and did you did you personally did you know much about akathisia and no. iatrogenic injury before that No, the irony is, is that
1: I had taught multiple semesters of psychopathology, which is basically teaching the DSM to people. And I don't think I ever mentioned acathesia once. Plus, I mean, I worked, one of my internships was with the head of psychiatry at the University of Miami School of Psychiatry. And I sat in with him and some fifth year medical uh, or uh, actually psychiatry fellows to do supervision, which I just basically sat back and listened, and I guarantee akathisia was never mentioned.
0: Oh, wow. Well, wow. and, and I know, that, you know, it'd be nice to think that psychiatrists and family practice doctors, it'd be great to think that everybody is kind of aware of the fact that the benzodiazepines are not good things anymore. You know, there's people who are on them, and, you know, maybe we can't take them off immediately, and and maybe there are some people that do okay with them, Yeah, but... But I I just saw a thing the other day, um, I think it was on the Cora website, a question and answer thing where a psychiatrist was talking about what medications they prescribe to patients. And it it seems like it's still going on. You know, the the benzo prescribing hasn't really probably slowed down out there. I'm I'm not, I mean, what what are you seeing with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what it is, is you have, there's a real disconnection. I mean, I think, you know, that first off, you know, as relates to akathisia, benzos are seen as a frontline treatment, not a causative drug. Um, But I think that, I think what it is, and this is one of the most depressing things I've learned on this journey, is that modern doctors have a tendency to not think outside the box that much. And Because they've been told certain things about benzodiazepines, including, you know, intermittent use is safe. Um, You know, I think they see any issue that comes from benzodiazepines as being more a weakness in the user as if they're an addict um, and not really related to the potency and dependency issues that relate to the actual drug itself. Um, You know, I think that I do think some doctors have become much more aware of it, but but it's also created a secondary problem, I think, which is doctors have become kind of some doctors have become resistant to prescribe benzos, but then they're very, very willing to prescribe gabapentin as if it's a substitute. And now we're starting to see tons of issues with gabapentin also because it has dependency to it. I think the dilemma is that the psychiatric profession has been really honestly lied to by the pharmaceutical companies as it relates to the true dependency slash addictive qualities of taking a psychiatric medicine. Yeah,
0: and um, uh, one, one that I've seen come up a lot lately, and maybe this is becoming a new favorite of the psychiatrist, is um, Seroquel. I, you know, yes. I, I hear a lot, a lot of my patients that see psychiatrists and they come back to me saying, I just got put on Seroquel. Well, and that's
1: what they put me on in the detox when I went to the medical detox, because I think what Seroquel does, Seroquel, I mean, ironically, you take somebody off of benzodiazepine, which is a considered medically a minor tranquilizer. And then you put somebody on Seroquel, which is considered a major tranquilizer. And, you know, I think that that what the reasoning behind it is that Seroquel is very sedating. And when you take somebody quickly off of benzodiazepine, you're often opening them up to high levels of agitation and restlessness. And the cerical I think, can cover a little of that. But the problem is, is it, what's it really covering? It's not always solving anything. And then you have a secondary problem of taking an antipsychotic, which has its own set of, of, of issues.
0: Yeah. And one thing, I, I was on a, um, I did an interview for the uh, benzodiazepine uh, information coalition. And um, I was criticized. I looked back at some of the comments, which luckily it was probably a good thing. I didn't know that there was live comments going on, but I went back and read some of them. And, and you know, some people criticized me for, for not talking about protracted withdrawal or, or, or seeming to be unaware of it, you know, cause I, I haven't seen, or up to that point, hadn't seen a lot of patients who I thought had, yep. or were dealing with protracted withdrawal. Yep. And, but there was an, another thing that was going on was that I had previously done an interview that I ended my kind of my ending statement was talking about, you know, the theory of of, of permanent, uh, lasting damage Injury. on a microscopic yeah. level to the brain, and I yep. thought like, how, how does that sound like? You know, people looking for hope and and healing, you know, to tell them like, you know, w- w- what if this is hopeless or hopeless for a long time? Right. And Which so, is pointless. so like,
1: which I think is pointless.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I, that was part of it. I was kind of shying away from that, thinking like, you know, I I don't want to sit here and say, you know, you might be suffering for five, 10 years or more. I mean, but, but it does look like that's going on out there. There are people that have this for a really long time.
1: It does. It, you know, people, it does seem people can have this for a long time, but at the same time, I think the message has to be also that, that within that there's a lot of healing, you know, that people do get much better that, um, but, you know, I, I, it's a very common fear in the community of permanence. And, you know, I'm eight and a half years now and I still have lingering symptoms. There's no doubt about that, but I am functional. Um, but I think that I think the dilemma, too, in that community is people want validation, you know, because they've gotten so little from the medical profession. And I think, yeah. that, you know, and I think that, um, you know, I I still do believe protraction is much more rare. Um but it does exist you know there are people that can go on for long periods of time in this and i think that's the dilemma too is until the medical system acknowledges that that's the case then they're going to have people sitting in front of them that they're going to basically pathologize
0: you know yeah so so at least people would like to hear you know that you have a real thing and this could take a really long time to get better um And, uh, but there are, there are therapies. It's not, I mean, that's another thing is that it almost seems like at a certain point, patients who have been through this, have been iatrogenically injured by the pharmaceutical industry. Basically they've taken a medication that the government said was safe to take and they were injured by it. And now, um, now whenever another medication is prescribed, you need to start looking at, at, uh, you know, how many times do they mention suicide in the literature? How many times do they mention, um, you know, akathisia, or, or all, all kinds of different horrible things, you know, which normally the doctor says, oh, I've never seen that happen, or that's not anything you have to worry about, it, it's, it's safe, you know, everybody seems to do fine with this drug, but uh, but yeah, it's like, a, a, you know, you get to a point where, you know, on the side point of view of a doctor, it's like, what can I even prescribe anymore, none of this stuff seems safe anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, but I, I think that
1: I think the tricky thing is, is we're all so unique. I mean, you can give ten people the same medicine, you're going to get ten different responses, and some of the responses will be positive. You know, I think that, but I do think, you know, as any, you know, as somebody that's gone, you know, been in this field for thirty years, that psychiatric meds have been way over prescribed. I mean, there's just yeah. no doubt, no doubt about that. Um, but
0: you yeah, know, I th- yeah, definitely. Ahead. Yeah. So, oh, and, and I recently, I. I did an interview with the, um, he was a C CEO of Adial pharmaceuticals. And I think i mentioned it, that they're, we were talking about a whole different drug. We were talking about a drug that they're, um, they're using for alcohol, alcohol treatment. And, um, they have another drug that he, he didn't give me the name of, but it's, it works on promoting the production of adenosine. And he said, it's the easy way to describe it. He said, it's kind of like caffeine, but 200 times stronger without the side effects. Okay. Um, so, and, and it, it kind of stood out to me because you had mentioned, when we talked previously, you mentioned adenosine, adenosine. you know, yep. and, and if, if that, that, that's like a balancing factor between, you said two different things that, um, but we, can you explain that the, the, the uh, well, I think what the, the,
1: adenosine seems to be a neuromodulator where it affects, like it seems to be kind of an, you know, between three systems, the GABA system, the glutamate system and the dopamine system. And it seems like those um, are the systems that get affected because what I believe is, is akathisia has predominantly been seen as um, a dopaminergic dysfunction. But when I experienced it, it felt like dopamine could be responsible for the movement part of it, but it felt like there was an agitation and restlessness that the dopamine couldn't account for. And so the more I researched it, the more it felt like it was a glutamate GABA dysfunction. And those two systems seem to kind of pair together, almost like a teeter-totter, where GABA is the relaxing part of the system and glutamate is the excitable part of the system. So I started researching it more, and that's when I found that adenosine link, which made sense to me because that if GABA, which is relaxing, is being reduced and glutamate, which is excitable, is being increased, that would have explained my symptoms. And then the dopamine being influenced to cause the movement would also explain my symptoms. And so what I'm curious about is that, you know, this, the, the researcher that I've been following um, did a study using a, an antiplatelet drug called dipyridamol that seems to increase adenosine and had success. He was treating a cohort of people uh, with restless leg syndrome and he found that the dipyridamol reduced the restlessness of that system. And I'd be, you know, that's something down the line that I would be very curious is with somebody with chronic akathisia, if you gave them dipyridamol, would it reduce, um, you know, some of the agitation?
0: Okay but it's has it, it's already been studied like the, you said that, that the researcher had already given at least he had with done less, a restless study, leg
1: syndrome. Yeah, he had done it with restless legs. But I also believe restless leg syndrome and akathisia are on a continuum that they are similar they might be you know very similar uh syndromes with just a little bit of you know delineation between them and including severity, you know restless legs is much less severe generally than akathisia is um but i just think yeah and
0: yeah restless leg syndrome that's uh one of the major concerns for um uh people coming off of opioids and then specifically buprenorphine or suboxone um some people complain of that being like the worst part of the uh the withdrawal
1: yep i mean i believe it you know because you know, restlessness. I, I, I think, unless anyone has experienced medication induced restlessness, uh, which is very different than the, the restlessness that we've mo- generally experienced most of us in our lives at different times, um, it's just such a level of severity that it, 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 it's so overwhelming. You know, I think that that's, um, you know, part of the you know conundrum is how can we parse some of these things out to find better treatment strategies and you know better ways of managing them yeah
0: and and akathisia just to I mean some of the descriptions I've read about it are are, it's hard to imagine like like I've um, just even imagine I can't even imagine that I, I don't even think I have anything in my experience to compare it to but people describe it as feeling like they want to just jump out of their own skin or peel their own skin away it's like a crawling of the skin feeling and you can't stop moving. And, um, uh, you know, some people have described it to me as feeling like an all all around or internal pain, but it's not like a, a normal pain. It's just pain all over pain inside somehow. Um, I mean, how would you describe it
1: to me? And, and, and my friend, Nicole, who interviewed you for Benzo information coalition, I believe, we've talked a lot about this because she had it also is that I think at the core of it, physiologically, it's, I would call it spinal excitability where it feels like your spine is literally vibrating and energized and elect as if you're plugged into an electrical socket that is just creating tons of unchecked energy. So that then you become so restless and agitated that you can't not move. It's like the equivalent of, you know, we've all been at a bonfire and gotten too close and you feel the feeling of the heat and you instinctively move away from it. Well, when you have akathisia, it's as though that, that there's a burning, you know, sun like heat an inch away from you constantly. And you try to move away from it by the pacing and you can never get away from it. it's as if, you know, any effort to you know your instinctive effort to get away from pain is thwarted because you just can't get away from it and you know that's the you know the hard part of it is that there's no remedy there's no resolution there's no way to get away from it
0: yeah and there's some videos online of people going through it and they're you know kind of uncomfortable to watch i mean to see a person pacing back and forth through their house moving can, their arms
1: and you can feel it. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to think a person like that can't get any quality sleep, they can't rest. And I mean, you know, like I feel like, and I'm sure it's nothing like drinking too much coffee, but I know that, you know, if you drink too much coffee, you just can't wait for it to get out of your system. You know, just, exactly. at least for me, you know, no, exactly. a lot.
1: I think we've all done that, right. We've all had a little too much coffee and you're like, Oh boy, this is really uncomfortable. You know, this is yeah. really uncomfortable. You know, and again, I think that's what's so disheartening for people is that there's no remedy currently, you know?
0: Yeah. What about some of the, like, some of the therapeutic um, or self-therapeutic things people can do? They talk about exhausting yourself to to extreme exhaustion, like maybe going for a long walk or doing some activity that can just make you so tired to overwhelm it. I think Um,
1: it's, think it's all based on degrees of it, you know? I think that, when I had it as bad as I had it, there was, you know, I walked 10 to 12 hours a day and it did nothing. You know, it just had to basically, I think, I think what happened for me was common for people with akathisia which is as the day goes on, because our, we have normal endocrine cycles in our body that by the evening that are generally just our natural cortisol and adrenaline levels are lower that I would kind of burn out a little bit then and be able to sit, but I wasn't rest I mean, I wasn't calm or comfortable. I was still extremely restless. But, you know, people with less severe cases that I've seen, you know, have anecdotally gotten relief from that type of an experience of, of, of exercise.
0: Okay. And did you ever try the controlled aggression therapy of like screaming into a pillow or punching a punching bag? I was screaming anyway. So, I mean, literally, I was just like, like,
1: I was the most noxious human to be around. All I was doing was screaming that I wanted to kill myself. Um, you know, that's why I lost so much of my social support, because nobody wanted to be around somebody. That also, at the same time, they would offer suggestions for, and there was, you know, I would reject them all because there was nothing. I think what we have to be careful of is akathisia, in many ways, is an injury. So I would compare it more to somebody with a compound fracture and somebody with a compound fracture. The only thing that's going to help them is, is, is rest or you staying off it. You know, it's, there's no intervention minus surgery, obviously at that point that you can, you know, accelerate healing from a fracture. So I think it's very similar that way. And I think that the tricky thing is there are, you know, akathisia again is a continuum. So you have people on, you know, different severity levels. And less severe people have more resources available. They have more ability to to work on things. But whereas somebody that has a moderate to severe akathisia really is kind of trapped at that moment, and there's really nothing psychosocially at that point that can help them, except support. You know, that's the crucial thing. And that's one of the reasons I'm creating the Institute, is that social support right now is the absolute biggest delineator of um, people surviving this. And you know, that's why it's so important that we get the medical system to understand this, because a doctor that could tell a family that this is what's happening and is, is, there, is worth their weight in gold because then the family can be engaged helping the person. Whereas unfortunately a lot of doctors, because they don't recognize akathisia will mislabel it. And because of that, it creates dangerous gaslighting for patients where they're being told they have something that's just not accurate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the typical experience of a, a doctor in a busy clinic, um, you know, the thinking is, you know, when you walk into a room and, and not, not that doctors are all, you know, doctors do care about their patients, but at the same time, the thinking is how, to, you know, you're, you're trying to plan out your escape. You know, how do I get out of the room? What yeah. can I prescribe? You know, diagnose quickly, prescribe quickly, and you know, and the visit is over with handing over a prescription. Um, and yeah, so so you can see, and and they, and I know that they've tried to make things easier. Maybe, and this is maybe what you're trying to work on, like just for example, uh, for diabetes. You know, they, they now they can use that hemoglobin A1C, which was never meant to be diagnostic for diabetes; it was meant to be a monitoring tool. And now they allow that to be used for diagnosis. And I had heard a lecturer say once. The reason for that is not because it's a good tool for diagnosis. The reason is, no, I think I might be thinking of something else. It might be the cutoff for diabetes, blood sugar, but they they had implemented a a much easier way of diagnosing rather than have people sit in the clinic all day doing drinking sugar drinks and testing their sugar again every couple hours. Because in New York, doctors were seeing 50 patients a day in these busy clinics and they didn't have time. So like, we need to make things easier just so they can quickly look at a person and say, okay, you've got diabetes. You no, know, we're not going to call it pre-diabetes. We're just going to call it what it is or what it's going to be soon and, and start treating it. Um, I mean, maybe that that's maybe where you're going, that the doctors that are moving quickly, seeing that a lot of patients every day, that they're aware of this, and this isn't something to, to prescribe more psychiatric medication for, right. but to acknowledge that it, acknowledge that it exists and maybe even recommend to refer someone to a, um, a counselor or a therapist or coach or someone who's experienced in working with a condition. Yep. Yep.
1: I mean, I think that's the thing too, is I want to train more people to be able to support people in this, you know, the there's such a need for people to be able to recognize and identify this and help people. I mean, you know, if a clinician is trained well enough and can tell a family that
0: this is what is happening, they can save somebody's life. Yeah, and you, you mentioned at one point that you you felt suicidal from it, which I can imagine. I,
1: oh, um, I,
0: I was actively suicidal for three years.
1: You know, yeah. I was, I mean, I literally would pace around with a loaded gun in my hand. Yeah, and,
0: and that's, it seems to me not the same. It, well, I don't know, there, there's, there, I, I interviewed someone a long time ago, a mental health comedian, and he talked about having a condition where he was always suicidal. And suicide was always an option and I, and I guess maybe we didn't talk enough about it like I don't know if you feel if he was feeling some kind of internal pain or, or what you know what was the reason for like why does someone feel that way but in in the case of akathisia I mean you can see like it, it might feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel that there's right. you know no no hope really and, and I think that's the message that you want to get across to people that there there is hope you know even though it may be way off in the distance that it does get better.
1: I think that's the single most important message because I think the dilemma is, is that, and you even referenced it earlier is that we, we don't know for sure if there is permanent damage for people. We don't, but we have, you know, so much of this currently is still based on faith. And I think the most important message for people is to understand that you can get better. You know, that there is hope because all I do all week is talk to hopeless people and try to give them hope, try to get them to hang in there. And, you know, I think it's important, you know, the brain is an amazing, amazing neuroplastic organism. And it can be subjected to high levels of of insult and still recover. And, you know, I think that the single most important message for anybody going through this is that you can recover.
0: Yeah, yeah. The brain can work around a, a huge amount of damage, um, and and accommodate a huge amount of damage.
1: I mean, just yeah. read some. Just read some Oliver Sacks. <laughs> you know, where he talks yeah. about like crazy brain injuries. Because yeah, I think what the brain does is it, it it compensates by redirecting. You know, by rerouting. You know. That's yeah. I, what I, I,
0: I actually I had an idea that popped in my head the other day that um of that that I had read and I mentioned this in that other interview that I, that I I had read about like one kind of injury that can happen which I think is more from stimulants chronic use of stimulants is that the little sacs that hold the uh, neurotransmitters can become leaky and you know then you know so people end up developing mood disorders or, or depression or anxiety because they they're individual neurons just aren't functioning well because the neurotransmitters aren't staying in the little sacs that they have to stay in. So they yep. have chronically low levels. And yep. I was thinking like that's kind of like emphysema, you know, the damage to the lungs where the air sacs become useless. And I'm like, this is kind of like emphysema of the brain, you know, just diffuse the I micro damage.
1: No, I would agree with that because it's 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 you know, I think it's so naive to think that the medicines that we introduce. I mean I always found it so ironic that depression is now labeled as this life-threatening, lifelong chronic illness that we can treat with benign, safe medicines.
0: Yeah.
1: Because most other branches of medicine understand that if you're treating life-threatening conditions, the medicines generally have their own complications just because they need to be powerful enough to solve a a, you know, a, a serious threat like
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's true. I mean, the Medicaid, uh, I mean, people that go to see a doctor for depression kind of like, it's kind of like treating, you know, for family doctors, at least it's like treating blood pressure. You know, you, someone comes with a high blood pressure, you try the first line thing that doesn't work. You try the next thing and you just go one by, you know, you try all combinations of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I've seen it happen with patients with, with depression and they end up on, on a ton of different medications all combined together. Yep. Um, and yeah, it just, it, and this is like, you know, back in my early career, when I first started, started working, I mean, I remember a patient that she, she was just so depressed and just nothing worked. I mean, um, I think she went from one psychiatrist to another. I, I tried whatever I knew to try and then, and, and just nothing worked. And every time she came in, I felt terrible. I'm like, you just look so I would think to myself, she just looks so, so down and you know, nothing works. And, um, actually in her case, so she had a burden of her parents, both had Alzheimer's and after they passed away, she, she seemed to do a little bit better. So, oh, okay. yes. I mean, you know, in some cases, I guess maybe it's rather than trying to medicate the problem, maybe look, look for what's causing it, you know, maybe like the child carrying the whole burden of caring for the parents or something like that. Yep. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's. uh, now, what do you think of like this whole Baker acting into a psych ward thing? It, it seems like that's killing people or co- you know causing a lot of damage. Like once hurt, that happens, yeah, what I do think you think I, of that? I think I read,
1: actually, let me look at my paper real quick. I have an exact statistic on this because one of the biggest, I would agree wholeheartedly that I think the dilemma is, again, you have, you know, entire psychiatric inpatient units where the nurses and the doctors have never heard about akathisia. And, you know, when you're, when somebody's in a psychiatric ward, they're going to be rapidly taken off or put on different drugs till they find what they perceive to be the right combination. And the dilemma then is that you know, you're putting people into active withdrawal at that point, um, which you're not going to recognize. And then it's going to really, you know, create, lots of potential consequences let's see Where's it works i'll find it in a second i mean it was something insane like here it is somebody uh, a guy did a retrospective meta- meta-analysis and discovered the three-month post-discharge suicide rate so, three months post discharge, suicide rate from inpatient psychiatric units was approximately a hundred times higher than the global suicide. Rate. So, basically, you go to
0: a psychiatric hospital, you're a
1: hundred times more likely to kill yourself.
0: Oh, well, I, which I can imagine, because apparently they don't let you leave until you take their, until they give you a psych drug, and all these psych drugs ha, now have black box warnings about you know increasing the risk of suicide. Um. You know, in, in fact, I mean, one interesting thing was in, in you know, reading the uh, product information for Ambien, uh, suicide is listed as a, uh, sui- not suicidal ideations, but suicide attempt is listed as an adverse reaction and not even like a, a rare one.
1: But what percent of doctors inform their patients of that when they give them an Ambien? Um, yeah,
0: one, yeah, one I mean, for- they may not even, <laughs> they may not even be aware of it themselves. Right. I mean, they, I mean, because it's. I mean, at least now they're all PDFs. You can search through for stuff, but, um, that, that came up in a, uh, what was it that show, um, where they, these, I think it was nine perfect strangers. These people went to a retreat and they were giving them psychedelic therapy. And there was a son that had died from suicide. And I think they were, they were saying it was an asthma medication. They never named it, but I think they were referring to singular, which also has a, a black box warning about suicide. Yeah. But, uh, uh- I mean, and I took, ironically, you
1: mentioned that I took Singular because I had asthma back in my history. And I remember after two days of Singular, I stopped it because it was making me really weird.
0: Yeah. And and people wouldn't think about that. It seems like a very safe medication. The impression, and that's probably the impression given by the marketing, but you just, as a doctor, I just always felt like, wow, Singular is so safe. It's for, it's for allergies, inflammation, asthma. And yeah. and it's almost like taking nothing. It's so, like you know you get this feeling and like you just like wait, hold on a second. That causes suicidal ideations. I mean, it's just crazy that that's even a an issue with it. It's crazy. I mean, I think that
1: you know it, it's amazing to me how many drugs have suicidal side effects that don't seem to be common knowledge.
0: You know? Yeah so anyway i wanted to talk about um at least two therapies that i know that you do um one of them and this was featured in a huge way on a show i don't know if you did you see the show the affair no the affair it it goes on for a lot of seasons maybe like five seasons but at some point for some reason they focused on emdr therapy uh these people that went to a they went to a convention on ptsd and and they're actually practicing it on each other and uh Doing this whole thing where they hold each other's hands and uh, stimulate their palms and say, you know, think of something and go with it. And and so they, they really featured it. So it was interesting. And, um and then I, then I see that you, you practice EMDR and I, and I looked it up and it was invented in the eighties by a, a woman psychologist that was walking through the woods one day and noticed that she felt better when her eyes moved back and forth. And then from that experience developed this, this incredible therapy. Uh, tell me about your experience with it.
1: Yeah, so that's Francine Shapiro, who was amazing. And so, my experience with EMDR is kind of multifaceted, which is both personally and professionally. So, let me start with the personal, which is before I got trained um, in EMDR, I actually went and had some EMDR done to me because I had some complex trauma from my childhood. And I was adopted and I had childhood asthma. And when I was actually getting trained in hypnosis, one of the trainers, we were just talking, he said to me, you know, your asthma is birth trauma. And I was like, wow, I've never thought of it that way. And about a year later, after I'd done some of my own personal EMDR, I was having dinner with a, a colleague of mine. And she said, why are you ashamed of your adoption? And just because of the work I'd been doing with the EMDR, I had this amazingly powerful ab reaction where I basically relived my birth for the next 45 minutes viscerally and felt all the terror and fear and all the experiences that an infant would experience being removed from its mother. And after i had this profound physical experience, you know what I never had again, another asthma attack. And it was as if my body had released the fear and pain that had been creating the asthma and what I've then so then I got trained in EMDR and I've used it now for probably almost twenty years, and I think for single event trauma it's the best treatment. You know, if you've had a car accident or, or some kind of you know experience that was a single event trauma, it's amazing. It's really good for complex trauma, but I think it's a part of that treatment. Um, what EMDR really is is, is it's based on you know as you described bilateral stimulation. You know, she discovered that when her eyes moved back and forth, it resolved some of the discomfort she was having, you know, related to that memory. And so it's the back and forth of the eye movements, which I think in many ways simulates the rapid eye movement we have when we dream. And, I think, you know, dreaming we know is a, a very powerful uh, problem solving process. And I think what she discovered was a, a way to consciously dream almost. To find a way to tap into the brain's natural um, healing mechanism. And you know, that's why, you know, I've seen people with you know, trauma, you know, have accelerated healing. You know, you can get over things in a couple sessions that with tra- talk therapy, I don't even know if you could get over. Um, but you know, that's been an amazing thing. But I think the second thing you were gonna ask me about that I think is really the most amazing thing that I've ever used. Is called the safe and sound protocol and oh
0: yeah yeah and that I the guy I looked up um, the guy who invented that it, it has so many publications and patents I mean he's like a an incredible intellectual he
1: really is I mean he created what's called the polyvagal theory which is one of the more modern views of neuroscience meaning that we have you know we have this giant vagus nerve that goes from our brain stem to our gut and it's kind of the super highway in our body and what he has kind of argued is that when we evolved, that vagus nerve branched out and branched out more into our upper organs, including our lungs and then into our throat and then into our facial expressions and our facial nerves and muscles. And what he basically talks about is how when we evolved, it was those, you know, that nervous system evolution that allowed us to become socially engaged the first mammals were food for the reptiles. They were just tiny organisms, but then they started to learn because they had this extensive new vagal system. They learned how to communicate with each other. So these small creatures started to outsmart the larger reptiles and thus evolved past them. And what he's created is a listening program called the safe and sound protocol. It's a five hour cumulative listening program. And you do it in like 15 minutes to 30 minute intervals on a daily or every other day basis. And what the program does is it tones the middle ear muscle. And the middle ear muscle is another one of those miracles of evolution where the middle ear muscle in reptiles is fused to the bone and doesn't vibrate very much, which is why they can't perceive a wide range of social signals whereas the mammalian middle ear muscle is detached from the bone and can vibrate more allowing us to pick up you know vocal tone and tone of voice and prosody you know how you speak and the speed you speak at we can read each other's facial expressions from smiles to the way our eyes squint or open or things like that which allowed for a very you know much wider range of communication but when people have experienced trauma And I believe a lot of trauma enters through the ear canal, through loud noises, through parental programming, through things we've been told, things we've heard. And that muscle becomes more flaccid, so it can pick up a wider range of frequencies. But the problem is, is once it starts picking up a wider range of frequencies, it starts inadvertently being triggered by lower frequency sounds in the environment. Because lower frequency sounds in the environment, our brain just recognizes as more related to predator frequencies, the growl of an animal, the hoofs sneaking up behind you. And therefore, once that happens, our brain inadvertently is getting triggered, often unconsciously, by noises. And it can be as subtle as, you know, let's say I'm in a class and I'm listening to the teacher, but then Johnny next to me is tapping his pencil. And his pencil is a lower frequency than the teacher's voice. I'm going to inadvertently pay attention more to that pencil noise than I am to the teacher's voice because my brain is ranking it as a greater threat. And even if I only pay attention to it, say, 20 seconds out of 10 minutes, it could be the 20 seconds where the teacher says, and your homework is, and the test will be on Friday. And when you miss those 20 seconds, you fail the test and you don't do the homework. And we call that attention deficit disorder.
0: Oh, uh, you know what it reminds me of? Um, I think for, was it last last uh, year holidays, you know, Christmas time. I, one of the gifts I was given by my wife was these incredible headphones that, when you turn on noise canceling, it's like the whole world turns off. It's like like I like my ears don't even work anymore, and it's the most yeah. relaxing feeling. Like I can go to the bathroom and not thinking like Is somebody out there listening to me or walking by?" Or um, well, yeah, you well, know, it's,
1: it's like, almost like it creates an enhanced feeling of safe.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I just feel relaxed and safe when I have the, these uh, earphones on. But you know, of course, I can't walk around the world or drive or anything wearing them.
1: No, that would be hard,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and borderline illegal. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So, so the safe and sound protocol. Um, it, it. Um, I, I guess it's music tuned to the the speech. Uh, frequency range it's filtered or something like that exactly exactly and i think what it does
1: then is like for me i've done five rounds because i look at it like weight training and i've gone from i mean i've just become so insanely productive (laughs) because i'm not distracted like i was i'm not restless like i was i'm so much more present things that used to bother me just roll off my
0: back. Um, so you're, you know, so you're able to get into like a flow state and do do stuff for longer periods. Yes. That's exactly,
1: that's a perfect, excuse me. That's a perfect way to describe. It, okay. that
0: yeah. yeah, that, that yeah I mean, so even, yeah. So even for people that are, you know, not, um, concerned about a specific trauma, you know, just someone that wants to be more effective. Uh, yeah, at I,
1: work. I think, I think it's an amazing enhancement product, you know, that, that, you know, like I said, you know, we all have small levels of things that have affected us in our life. You know, I mean, there's not anybody that unscathed, you know, or escapes completely unscathed. And I think the trick is, you know, it could enhance someone's concentration, it can enhance someone's productivity. You know, I find it gets rid of resentments. Because the reason people hold on to resentments is that it's it's a safety mechanism which is if I forget who hurt me they can hurt me again but if I remember oh, wow. yeah. but if I remember who hurt me through the form of a resentment then they won't do it again But the problem with resentments is that you can hold on to stuff for years But what's amazing is when you feel safe and non-threatened and that's what the protocol really does that's why you know think of the first word in the protocol is safe is that all of a sudden you're freed up from that past energy because the threat doesn't feel the same anymore. It becomes imperceptible because, you know, when you feel safe, the world opens, you feel curious, you feel creative, you feel loving, you feel present. All the things actually we we set for goals in therapy. And, and, and you know, I just have, you know, I've never seen something, and the best thing about it is it's passive. You just have to listen to it. It's not like you have to do anything more than that. You can just sit there and, you know, with your, you know, get a nice comfortable chair at home, relax. And because what the original protocol that he used it for was with autistic kids. Oh, okay. And he has he's had major success with autistic kids because I think a lot of autism, at least some of the behavior, is based out of being overwhelmed sensory wise.
0: Oh, uh, so, but oh, so so now does it? The frequency does it over the five-hour period? Does it change? Like, or is it just kind of? Yes, yes.
1: I think the way I understand it is the first two sessions are a little bit different, almost getting the ears ready. Where the third, fourth, and fifth session seem to be more of a different frequency that I think is more deep in terms of the. effect, you know, it's a little more powerful.
0: So is it like, like little by little introducing the those other frequencies that might normally be disturbing, but like kind of sensitizing people to them? I think that's
1: probably part of it because, you know, what my experience was when I did it for the third round I did, it was the most uncomfortable round I had, because I think what happens is this, is that by reconfiguring or restrengthening that middle ear muscle you start sending the brain different messages. Like, let's say if you had complex trauma, a lot of your messaging to your brain is going to be subtly saying, you're in danger, you're in danger, you're in danger. And when you do the protocol, it almost resets that, that mechanism to predominantly messages of you are safe, you are safe, you are safe. But the dilemma is if I have a history of trauma or a history of abuse or something like that, my body's going to say, wait a sec, you're telling me I'm safe, but I have a history that contradicts that belief. And so that's why, you know, the original protocol, he would do it, he would do it five hours, one hour each. And then when they started using it with complex trauma, they found that that was way overwhelming. And even 30 minutes is overwhelming for most of my clients. So what I do with a lot of my clients that have complex traumas, I do 15 minute intervals and then rest for a day or two because again an autistic child's not going to have as much if you know, if they don't have as much of a trauma history you know if you start sending the brain you're safe you're safe you're safe signals it's not going to cause as much of a you know friction in the sense where a body's going to say wait a second i have all these stored memories
0: you yeah. know yeah. And, and there's and it's not just like if you work with someone like they you wouldn't just send them off as they listen to the music you would talk to them about the
1: experience yeah you give give them lots of prep you know you want to make sure you understand their histories um you know because like anything in in our profession history taking is really important and you just want to know your client well enough to be able to possibly predict you know places they might need some extra support yeah yeah that, that makes
0: sense um yeah that's that sounds really good I mean that just in this what you told me about your asthma and EMDR I mean that's incredible going from a, a medication that can cause suicidal thoughts to go into a treatment that a non medication that right that pretty much resolved the whole the whole problem um,
1: yeah, and get a pulmonologist
0: to agree with them <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah 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 of course you want to get your pulmonary function test and don't quit your medication until uh, yeah the pulmonologist says it's okay.
1: Yeah, but I mean I just think that you know but how many doctors would be willing to say wow, I can't believe that happened and I believe, it, you know, instead they would believe it was some spontaneous remission that had nothing to do, you know, with anything else because I think again that's where I think medicine has failed us is is it forgets that we're whole complete beings that our emotions play so much of a role in all of
0: our function. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um and, and have you seen like people with um Iatrogenic trauma from medications and akathisia. Have they benefited from these therapies, station sounds? Yes,
1: because what I well, what I find is that once pe- people have to get to a certain place in their healing, like it's not going to help somebody that's in an active state of pacing and and franticness. It just won't. But or at least I'm not sure, you know, because I think you can't. You just can't override certain chemical experiences. But I've used it with a lot of my clients as they've started to heal. Because the other thing is a lot of my clients, the reason they ended up on psychiatric drugs to begin with was, was trauma. And so, you know, by helping them, you know, reduce kind of the overall load on their nervous system from an anxiety perspective, I also think that just naturally helps somebody heal from an iatrogenic injury because it's in a sense lowering or lessening the load they have to carry. And so I've used it with probably 10 to probably 15 clients now that were injured um, iatrogenically and i've had really good success
0: oh wow well that, that's i mean it's great to know i mean that there's stuff that can be done you know that yeah i mean you know it's one, nice to say you know we we believe what you have and you just need time but it's nice to know at some point there are therapies along the way that are not medications that can help
1: Yep. yep i mean i th- and, and it kind of goes back to the original idea which is hope is the single most important thing you know, yeah, people, definitely. Have, people have to have hope that this is something that can be, you know, not only survive, but you come back and thrive
0: afterwards. Yeah. So would you say like when you first started having these really bad symptoms in akathisia, like for you personally, was it about three years when things started turning around where you started yes. feeling like maybe life isn't so bad?
1: Yes. That was exactly it. Three years.
0: Okay. Did did you find during those three years, like, was there any kind of relief of, you know, things that even for short periods of time that you found yourself enjoying doing or was it just nonstop?
1: No, it was just nonstop, sadly. There was no relief, unfortunately. You know, Yeah. but, you know, again, I'm just so grateful that I hung in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, so it does, it does get better. I mean, sometimes can take a while. It definitely gets better. And, and that's that's an interesting difference between people overcoming addiction versus iatrogenic injury. You know, that there's, um, you know, people who are angry at doctors for what they've done to them. And then you have the people on the addiction side that may be going through exactly the same thing to some degree, but on their side, it may be more guilt of what they've done to themselves. Right. But The underlying issue is like kind of, it's the same thing. You know, they have injured themselves with chemicals and now they are having to go through some difficult years of time and, and healing. Yep. Yeah. Yep, but again,
1: you know, hope is the key. Hope is the key.
0: So, uh, Chris Page, thank you for joining me today on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Uh, This has been excellent, and thank you, Doctor Leeds. I've so enjoyed it.